Diverse voices. Unique sound. Not the same old thing. Different, different. This is NOCO FM. The dynamics of change are learnable. The most successful and enduring of these is brought about by something so subtle that it's often not taken seriously. Small individual choices based on integrity and shared intention. The art of beingness. With everything going on in our world today, it can be hard to feel like we can make a difference or that we can help initiate or enact change in our world. Stefan A. Schwartz is a distinguished consulting faculty of Saybrook University and a fellow of the William James Center for Consciousness Studies at Sophia University. He's the columnist for the journal Explorer and the editor of the web publication SchwartzReport.net, in both of which he covers trends that are affecting the future. A regular writer on the Huffington Post, Schwartz helps us discover how we can tap into our own power to affect social change and make better choices. Join us as we discuss the world's current situation and how we may be part of the positive change process. Welcome to The Spark. I'm your host, Stephanie James. I've had so much fun reading your book, The Eight Laws of Change, and just doing some research on you. And as I was reading your book, The Eight Laws of Change, How to Be an Agent of Personal and Social Transformation, I was struck by the fact that you were actually at the Lincoln Memorial when Dr. Martin Luther King gave his deeply moving and historic speech, I Have a Dream. That's right, I was. I knew as we were walking down Constitution Avenue And I looked over and saw three Republican partners from Covington and Burling, then the most prominent Republican law firm in Washington, D.C. I knew we'd won. That is wonderful. What what was it like for you being there and how did it affect your life? Well, I'd been involved with uh, civil rights movements since the 50s and um, had been involved in a number of demonstrations, had gotten arrested a number of times, had slept in some untold number of Baptist choir lofts. So I had very strong feelings about this going back to when I was nine years old, actually. That's when I became aware of racial differences. And so to walk down Constitution Avenue with thousands of people to the Lincoln Memorial on that afternoon. And as I said, to, to see people who would, you would have thought would been, have been in opposition marching as well, I knew that we had, we had come to a moment of change. And then, of course, when Johnson signed uh, 64, the voting rights and the uh, 65, I thought, rather naively looking at it now, I thought we finally had healed the racial cancer that had torn the country apart to a point of a civil war and was really very happy. And then later when I was involved with the transformation of the American military from an elitist conscription organization to an all-volunteer meritocracy and we 
were also able to get race eliminated as a consideration for promotion, you know, I thought we were off to the races and that it was, uh, we had finally healed this. Mm. But of course, you know, looking around today and the rise of white supremacy supported by the Trump administration, I just, uh, I just can't, it's very hard to explain how really profoundly depressing and disheartening what's going on today is. Well, I imagine, especially coming out of that era where truly it felt like there there was so much hope and there was such a belief that it really was transforming. Yes. I mean, it's hard for people who, you know, weren't around at that time, weren't born yet, to have gone from the kind of racism that you saw in the United States in the post-war post-Civil War period. And then when Harry Truman in 48 uh, desegregated the military and everything kind of changed. And then, of course, with Dr. King, you really thought there was this sense of progress was being made and that that we were really this this wound that had begun with the beginning of the country was finally healing and now it's it's as if the scab has been torn off and unbeknownst to us, this festering wound has been going on just without our awareness. I, I just find the current circumstances really unspeakably vile. Indeed, I agree with you. And I feel like there's so much for so many of us that that have actually had, you know, what's called white privilege, we haven't really even realized how it's been festering this whole time. No, I think that's, I think you make a very good point that what's happened is, is that this below the public conversation level of racism has been going on. And what's happening, I mean, first of all, just to put things in some sort of historical context, we are becoming a majority-minority country. Some states, like California, already are. And for about a third of the country, third of the white people in the country, this is really a very threatening thing. They, they feel, if you, I, I read the right-wing white nationalist literature, because I think it's important to stay on top of what other people who don't agree with you think, so when you read the white nationalist literature, what you get is this sense of their their loss of privilege. It's like their get out of jail cards got confiscated. And this sense that even if I was a poor white person, I still was better than you if you were a person of color because I have my get out of jail pass and you don't. And now that that is being lost, and also it's tied up with gender equality. The real problem is this kind of Abrahamic thinking that goes back to the Middle Bronze Age, the idea that men are dominant over women. I mean, the idea that the half of the population who have vaginas ought to be subordinate people to the other half who have penises is just crazy, if you think about it. Oh, it's absurd. And yet it is, it is exactly, it's Abrahamic thinking because 
it all arose, as I said, in the Middle Bronze Age, the, when there were roaming tribes in the Middle East and where wealth was transferred through bloodlines. And so, and so it became very important to control, uh, what I would call it, the transporters, because you can only, there's a kind of existential dread, I think, that men have. And that is the only way to get into incarnation is through the body of a woman. So there is a kind of existential inferiority that men feel because they can't do it. And when it was important because, because wealth was transferred through blood and not money, it became important to control the women so that you always knew who the, who the child was. And that kind of Abrahamic thinking has just stayed with us, this sense of male dominance and I think the I think racism arises because for many thousands of years there were multiple hominid species on the planet. We don't think about this kind of thing, but for longer than recorded history, there were multiple. You know, the Neanderthal and the Denisovans, and now it turns out there are probably three different branches of the Denisovans. So for many thousands of years you came over the hill and you saw some people on the other side on another hill and you had to decide very quickly, are they ours or are they the others? And so I think it just became genetically built in because uh, of that choice process. And it only gets overcome by will and compassion. And for a lot of people, the other is a very comfortable way of laying off your problems. It's not my problem. It's because of them. Mm -hmm. You know, things would be better except for them. We would be doing something differently except for them. And so this fear of the other is very baked into who we are as a species. And it requires a, an, an act of will to overcome it. And for about a third of the country, based on the polling, the idea that we're becoming a, major, a majority minority country, the idea that, that women are going to be equal is just incredibly threatening. And it's tied up with religion because religion has this very also Abrahamic view of how the world works. This idea that we have dominion over the earth, for instance, is the source of most of the problems that we have with the carbon era. You know, we aren't, the idea that we stand at apart from the rest of the matrix of life and that we're somehow special and we had this rich uncle that left us a bank account that we can do anything we want with is turning out, as we can see by climate change, to be utterly untrue. And yet it's baked into the Abrahamic religions just as racism is baked in. And, and so we're really at a place in our country and in the world, it's not just the United States, but throughout the world, we are at a place where we have to decide whether we're going to be go it alone or whether we're all in it together. And the truth of the matter is we're not going to navigate it successfully unless we accept we're all in it together. Yes. You know, and, and so part of what I'm hearing you say, Stephen, is though even we even though we have this innate kind of hardwired fight or flight survival mechanism that has made us, 
you know, us and them, us and the other. It's important that we work on rewiring that circuitry so that we can come together and actually be this interconnected web because that is how we are going to make it. And otherwise, things are looking a little bit dark. Oh, I, I, absolutely. I mean, we are at a civilization threatening moment. You, you just look, I'm a data person. First of all, I don't care about politics except anthropologically. I'm, only, I'm not interested in what people say or the banners they wear or the, you know, the hats they wear. What I want to know is what are you doing? And my belief is that successful societies are based on the premise that the function of society is the fostering of well-being from the individual to the family, the community, the state, the nation, the planet itself. And when you look at countries that are making well-being their first priority, what you see is that everything, when it is operated on that basis, is more effective, more efficient, easier to implement, more productive, nicer to live under, and much, much cheaper. Whenever you hear somebody say, oh, we can't do that because we can't afford to help poor people, black people, brown people, women, whatever, as soon as you hear that, you know they're either speaking from willful ignorance or they're just lying. Because the truth of the matter is, Whenever you have well-being as your first priority, it's always much, much cheaper. And that's, I think, one of the crises that we as a country, in the United States, we only have one social priority, and that's profit. Everything is run on the basis of profit. We don't have a health care system. We have an illness profit system. We run the largest gulag in the world. We have 2.3 million people in prisons and jails when we only have 4.4% of the population. We spend more keeping a medium security felon in prison than it would cost to send that person to college. I mean, when you think about that, when you actually look at facts and you deal with facts, it becomes very clear that what we have got is a problem that we are experiencing in, as Americans is it's every man for himself. Profit is the only thing that matters. And you want to punish the people that are beneath you in your mind. And so we have structured all of our systems are designed, A, to produce profit, and B, to punish or inflict some sort of damage on people that you can get away with doing that. And we can't, it just isn't going to work. We have to see it as a team effort in which everybody pulls together because we do not have dominion over the earth and climate change is going to severely disrupt our ideas of, of what a good society is. Uh, 20 years from now, it's going to become so absolutely clear. We're going to have millions of, of internal refugees. I mean, there are going to be three major migrations away from the coast, out of the south because of the sea rise, out of the southwest because of heat and lack of water, and out of the central states because of violent, destructive weather events. So we're going to have tens of millions of people moving around in the country trying to find safe spaces to live. 
And if we don't sort out this, we're all in it together issue, it's just going to get very nasty. Well, Stephen, let's talk about that, because I think it's really important in today's world. And as you talk about these events coming in the next 20 years, we can start to feel I think people can start to feel that they're pretty powerless as individuals and they can often feel very helpless in this world to enact any kind of change. And yet, as I was reading your book and and reading things about the consciousness movement, how can we become a part of that change and how can we start to feel like we can affect social change through beingness? Well, you know, because of we of my involvement with the civil rights movement, or let me frame it a little differently. Four times in my life, I've been involved with changing history for the better, sometimes just as a spear carrier and sometimes in a more influential role. But four times I've been involved in the 50s and 60s, civil rights, in the 70s, the transformation of the American military, in the 80s, the uh, citizen diplomacy movement during the height of the Cold War, and the environmental movement. And through all of that, the consciousness movement, that is the idea that we are more than animated meat and that there is a fundamental causal basis of consciousness. So I started about, it's now been about 20 years. About 20 years ago, I got interested in how social transformation can occur and how it can be accomplished by ordinary people. And what really got me started in this was an interview that I read about Gandhi just before he was assassinated in 1948. A reporter from the Times of India was sent up to see him at his ashram, and they said to him, the reporter said, my editor sent me up here to ask you just one question. And Gandhi said, well, what's the question? And he said, what, what my editor wants to know is, how did you force the British to leave India? I mean, you had no money, you had no army, you had no official position. How did you force one of the most powerful nations on earth to give up its most cherished colonial possession? How did you do that? And Gandhi's answer was what really got me started on this. He said it wasn't what we did that mattered, although that mattered. It wasn't what we said that mattered although that mattered. It was the nature of our character, our beingness, that made the British choose to leave India. Notice the difference of the verb, force and choose. And I got to thinking about that, and so I started reading about Gandhi. And Gandhi is an interesting character. Most people know very little about him. And when you think about him, you see him in his little dhoti, you know, bald-headed with his little wire glasses. But in fact, Gandhi started out as a barrister uh, in South Africa, and he was a the quintessential Anglo-Indian. You know, he dressed like a British uh, gentleman, and uh, he thought of himself as a British gentleman. And then, when he was in South Africa one day, he tried to buy a rail ticket in a first-class a first-class rail ticket, and they they wouldn't sell it to him. They would only sell him a third-class ticket because in South Africa during apartheid, the period of apartheid, there were white people, there were what were called colored people, mixed-race people, and then there were the black people. 
So he was an Indian, and so he was a colored person by the definition of apartheid South Africa. Anyway, they he made a big fuss about it, and they put him in jail. And while he was in jail, he came across, I don't know how, it isn't recorded, or at least I've never found it. He came across a little, it's not really as long as a book, it's more like a monograph, written by Henry David Thoreau called Civil Disobedience. You think about this. Thoreau is this sort of late 19th century eccentric character who was a transcendentalist and who even by his contemporaries was considered a, a, a bit of a kook. And he went out to his little pond, the Walden Pond, and it really is a pond. It's not a lake, it's a pond. And while he was sitting by Walden Pond, he began to think about this, and he wrote this little monograph called Civil Disobedience, which is still available. Anyway, Gandhi read this thing, and he thought about it And while he was in jail, and he decided that he was going to go back to India and that he was going to use the principles in Thoreau's book to get India independence, and that's what he did. And then Martin Luther King read about Gandhi while he was a young preacher in Alabama and trying to figure out how to get civil rights to move into the next phase. And he read about Gandhi reading the civil disobedience, and he got a copy and he read it. So just as an aside, think about that for a second. One eccentric 19th century man sitting near a little pond by himself writes this little book, and it changes the course of history for three countries, the Great Britain, the United States, and India. I mean, that's really wow. quite amazing if yeah. you think about it. Gandhi was able to get independence for India without a war. I mean, that's quite extraordinary. Nobody talks about that very much, but that's really quite amazing. I mean, we couldn't get independence from Britain without a war, but he was able to pull it off. So I got to thinking about, well, what is it that's in that little book that these two men saw that was so powerful that it changed the whole course of their lives and then changed the whole course of their country. And I read it, and that get, got me started doing research. And as I did the research, and as I said, I'm a data person, so I, I'm not very interested in philosophies or speculations or theories. I want to look at social outcome data. That's what I care about. And as I looked at social outcome data, I could see this idea of what I, what I came to call the theorem of well-being. And that was that when you create social policy that creates well-being, you always not only produce better well-being, but it becomes more productive, more efficient, more effective, nicer to live under, and much cheaper. The individuals in the group and the group collectively must always act from the beingness of life-affirming integrity. And out of that, I finally distilled what I came to call the quotidian choice. And that's how you bring social change happen. That's how the people that are going to listen to this program could change the course of the 2020 election. Think about this. I'm quite serious about yes, this. Yes, yes. Just the people who are listening to this program with you and me would commit to the quotidian choice. And that is, this is very simple, doesn't cost a dime, doesn't require any position. I don't care how poor or how rich you are. It's exactly the same. It doesn't make any difference. And that is, 
Every day you make thousands of choices. You buy a certain kind of gas. You buy a certain kind of toothpaste, a certain kind of toilet paper, a certain kind of home cleanser. We make hundreds of these choices, and they're really votes for or against something. So every day you recognize you're going to make hundreds of choices. Now, most people don't even realize they make these choices. They just do it because that's what their mother did. That's what their roommate in college said they ought to do, whatever. So first, you become aware you make choices. Second, this is the simple part, you always choose the one that is the most compassionate and life-affirming and fostering of well-being. Now, none of your choices may be good choices, but inevitably, one of them is always better than the others. And that's the one you choose, the one that is the most compassionate, life-affirming, and fostering of well-being as you understand it in that moment. Maybe you'll understand it differently a year from now. Maybe you would have understood it differently 10 years ago. But as you stand here today making that choice, you choose the one that is compassionate and life-affirming as you judge it at that moment. And if you do that, and you tell 10 people that you're doing it as a discipline, and invite them to do it and tell 10 of their friends, you just do the math. It goes up very quickly. So as I say, when I make the statement that the people listening to this program can change the course of the 2020 election, I am quite serious about that. And they do it by making every day when they make hundreds of choices, they always choose the choice that is the most compassionate and life-affirming and fostering of well-being of the options available to them. And Stephen, I think one of the important pieces here is talking to people about how they can get in touch with what defines compassion, what defines well-being to them. Because I know part of what you do have done so much research on and have lived is this thing of being in touch with mindfulness and meditation and cultivating that within ourselves as a way of accessing those states internally, and then we can better make conscious choices intentionally. Well, it is certainly true that the greatest gift you will ever give yourself is to develop the daily practice of meditation. It doesn't matter how you do it. It just matters that you do it. You know, it doesn't have, you don't have to be religious. You don't have to belong to any particular religion. It doesn't make any difference. There's no, it does, it's the, the nature of the technique is not what is important. What is important is that you, I mean, really from a strictly from a research point of view, is that for 20 minutes every day, you hold intentioned, focused awareness. Dr. Natalie Phillips, host of Connecting a Better World, and every Monday on the show, we take time to spotlight individuals, businesses, and organizations doing good in this world with thought-provoking interviews designed to focus on the impact they are making in our community. Listen live every Monday at 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern, only on NOCO FM, 
and subscribe to the podcast at noco.fm or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey friends, this is Charles with NOCO FM, the podcast network and streaming radio station dedicated to creating diverse shows just like this one and the numerous others that we help produce. We hope you'll consider becoming a supporter on Patreon, which helps us pay our hosts, produce more shows, and allows us to give back to nonprofits in Northern Colorado. Not only do you become part of our community, but giving also gets you access to an incredible selection of exclusive content from all of our creators, starting at just $2 a month. To get started now, just visit noco.fm slash patron and sign up. Once again, that's N-O-C-O dot F-M slash patron. Hope you have a fantastic start to 2019. We've got some big things coming your way. Now, back to the show. Now, I have developed a technique called Meditation for Modern Minds. I have a CD that people can get. Go to my website, stephanieschwartz.com, or go to nemosene.com, uh, or go to Amazon, and you can get Meditation for Modern Minds, and it will teach you a technique of meditation, literally allow you to reprogram yourself. But I'm much less concerned about pushing any particular technique than the actual doingness of it, because there are over a thousand research papers on meditation and what it does, and it's quite extraordinary. Meditation will change your perspective. It'll make you sleep better. It'll make you more creative. It'll raise your IQ. It'll alter your genetic. It'll give you a better sex life. I mean, it just goes on and on and on, the number of studies that have been done using various kinds of meditation techniques. So most people in the West, when they think about consciousness, they think that, well, it's the result of some kind of biochemical electrical process in my neuroanatomy. And when uh, the body is dead, the consciousness disappears. But the research tells us something quite different. It tells us that Consciousness exists before we incarnate, and it continues after physical death, and that it is the fundamental, that consciousness is how we create reality. It is a kind of collective intention. But if you also, if you think about religion, all the enduring religions begin because one individual has a non-local consciousness experience, that is, they have an experience of this consciousness independent of physicality awareness. They talk about it. And if they're a charismatic person and people listen to them, then people gather around and talk to them and listen to what they say. Because religion is not just an individual's experience, but it's also a collective agreement. It's a collective intention. So if you look at Jesus is awakened when he gets baptized and he goes into the desert. Muhammad is awakened when he goes into the, a, a cave called Hira that is a kind of spiritual center, and he has this non-local consciousness experience. Buddha goes to a meditation master who teaches him how to meditate, and then he goes and sits under his little tree. All of those, it's just individual men who have had, or women, it doesn't matter, 
who have had non-local consciousness experiences, and they talk about those experiences, and people listen. And then what happens is humanity, it becomes human, and people build up documents, the scriptures, and they have practices, and they build up priesthoods. All of that's man-made, but the core of it is non-local consciousness. And then if you look at religious practices all over the world, regardless of the dogmas, you just let the dogmas, that's just all human-made stuff. You look at the dogmas, what you see is empirical science. Uh, that is, empirical just means observational, observed over a long time by many people. You see these empirical sciences, and, and they're, they all have the same elements. Regardless of the religion, the elements are always the same. You have the place where you gather, the sacred place. And um, whether that's a church or a synagogue or a temple or an Etruscan oak grove, doesn't make any difference. It's defined as the sacred space. And we know from research that what happens is that, la that, that focus of intentioned awareness creates an informational enrichment in the non-local. That's what makes things sacred. First, there is the statement of intention. The whole thing begins with a statement of intention. If you're a Christian, it's the Nicene Creed. If you're a Jew, it's the Shema. If you're a Buddhist, it's a Sutra. If you're a voodoo practitioner, it's uh, one of the voodoo gods, whatever. The, the community makes a statement of common intention. That, And we know from neuroscience that the, what happens is that that causes brain entraining. And then there's a period of singing, dancing, chanting, drumming, whatever. And what that does, we know again from neuroscience, this is all objective measurements. This isn't, I'm not talking about theories or ideas or speculations. I'm talking about physical measurements. What happens is all the brains in the community become entrained. And then there is this moment in which some, but not all of the community members may have the potential to have a non-local consciousness experience. May not happen. Not everybody's going to have it happen, but some people could have it happen. And that would be speaking in tongues, prophesying, healing. There's this period where the community witnesses some of its members having this non-local consciousness experience. And then there's the recommitment to, to gather again. And so if you look at religion from that point of view, you realize that all religions, whatever their dogmas are, are all about teaching people how to attain and sustain intention-focused awareness so that they can become aware of this aspect of consciousness. We call it spirit in religion. So that we, you think of the eternal self. We call it the soul in religion, that we are more than animated meat, that we are actually beings of consciousness. And that is what allows you to see that we live in a matrix of consciousness in which all consciousness is interdependent and interconnected. And that's where we need to get in order to deal with climate change. Well, and as you were saying, you don't have to be a part of a religious sect to start accessing that. So if you just begin a mindfulness or meditation process, you can start accessing that place within. Absolutely. You don't have to become religious. You don't have to belong to a religion. 
It's not about religion. Religion is basically an empirical science developed over millennia by observation to train people to open to non-local consciousness. But you can do that without any relationship or context about religion. You can start meditating. They call it mindfulness in science because meditation seems to have a religious term. But the point is that you sit in silence for a period of time every day and you allow the chatter that is created by the sensorial impact of all of our senses, the taste, touch, smell, all that, that you allow that to recede and you open yourself to this non-local aspect of consciousness. Because when you do that, what it will do is change your entire perspective on how the world works, which is, by the way, why a number of religions are so resistant and condemning of meditation, because what meditation does is it allows you to experience that you are connected, you are part of the matrix, and that it's much less important what you personally believe as what you personally do. It's the doingness that makes the difference. And so you make different choices. When you see that you are part of a matrix of consciousness, you make different choices. You just choose to do things differently. You don't always start from, how can I exploit this to my benefit? How can I get my profit? I don't care if I screw other people. How can I get mine? That's the, that's the thinking of a materialist. We're all independent. It's every man for himself. We have no connection with the earth. It's just an exploitable bank account. There is no consciousness beyond physical death. There is no consciousness in any being but humans. All of that, that's all that Abrahamic materialist thinking. And instead, you begin to see life as a matrix in which you and the birds and the bees and the animals and the plants, everything is part of this consciousness matrix. And so you make different choices. You would grow your, your vegetables differently. You would treat the birds and bees differently. For instance, you would plant flowers that would attract them. You would begin to see what's going on in the world differently. You'd see that the technologies that we have developed are technologies based on materialism. And so they're exploitive and extractive and damaging. And instead, you would replace them with different kinds of technologies. I find it very interesting, for instance, that most of Europe has committed by 2040 to have no carbon-powered vehicles on their roads at all. If you look at the happiness indexes, for instance, or wellness, I mean, you look at the United States, we spend more than any other country on Earth by orders of magnitude. Not, it's not a little difference, it's a huge difference for healthcare, and yet we have the 37th, we're rated 37th in the world. We have terrible health care. In fact, we don't have health care. We have an illness profit system. We run a prison system that is basically a profit system. We have pharmacology is run on profit. We have education run on profit instead of well-being. And when you look at the countries who have a different view in which well-being becomes the primary, what you see is that they're happier, they live longer, they're healthier. They have more income. It's difficult for Americans because two-thirds of Americans have never been outside of the United States, so they have absolutely no idea 
what other countries are like. But if you, for instance, went to the Nordic countries, you would see free college education, whereas in the United States, the greatest debt we have, other than home mortgages, greater than credit card debt, is student debt. So you go to a country like Norway or Denmark, they don't have, that. that this doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. People don't go bankrupt because of health care. They don't lie awake at night wondering whether they're going to have to choose between the food they eat and the insulin they're going to buy or whatever medication. So you change the way you choose to live in the world. And when you change and you tell your friends that you are changing and what you are doing to change and invite them to join you in doing this, when 10% of any cohort make a change in consciousness, again, this is science, not my speculation, we know from research when 10% of any cohort makes a change in consciousness, the entire cohort, whether it's a church group, a school committee, or a nation, has to change to accommodate that. So once again, I say, if just the people that are listening to this show would make this commitment to the quotidian choice and do it and tell 10 friends that they're doing it and invite them to tell 10 of their friends, by the time we vote in 2020, the election will come out differently. This is all spelled out in the Eight Laws of Change, the book I wrote, but even without the book, you just do the quotidian choice. That's the most important part. We have the ability to bring change into reality. It's just about choice. And one of the gateways into that choice that you've shared is this meditation and mindfulness. That's one of the ways that we cultivate making the compassionate choice and the choice for well-being. And as we're just about out of time, I wanted to share a quote from your book that where you quoted St. Teresa of Avila and she says, the magnificent refuge is inside you. Enter. Shatter the darkness that shrouds the doorway. Be bold. Be humble. Put away the incense and forget the incantations they taught you. Ask no permission from the authorities. Close your eyes and follow your breath to the still place that leads to the invisible path home. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? It's, it's a medieval Christian nun who sounds like a Buddhist monk. Absolutely. Such a powerful quote to remind us that we actually, each one of us, have that power within us and that we can wake up and be more intentional about making these daily choices that you're talking about. And that in and of itself, as you're saying, even that that 10% will then become what is the change agent in our world today. Yep, we can do it. The question is, do we have the courage to do it? And I guess that's the question each one of us has to ask ourselves: If we're willing to start this journey within, and then that's also what interconnects us to each other, then I think that change is possible. Yes, it is. And I appreciate you giving me a chance to talk about this. I appreciate you being on the show so much. And I literally, I have about... 12 other questions written down for you. So my hope would be maybe sometime that I could have you back on the show. And sure, I'd love to have you back on the show and visit with you. Um, I saw that your workshop online is coming up. I know it starts tomorrow. Is it going to ever run again? 
but you can sign up at any time. Okay, wonderful. It's, it's a, I designed this workshop. It's called Opening to the Infinite. You go to Glidewing and uh, uh, sign up for it. You can sign up at any time. And it's everything science knows about consciousness. It looked so fascinating. And I'd, I'd love to have you back on so we could talk about some of the science, the culmination of 50 years of research into the, nation, or into the nature of consciousness, remote viewing, dream crafting, and therapeutic intention, and how we can cultivate these skills. Mm-hmm. Stefan, is there anything that you want to make sure that I haven't covered or we haven't touched base on that you want to make sure is the essential message that people are left with from our time together? Do the quotidian choice. I've written all this up. You can go to academia.edu and download my papers, my research papers. They don't, it doesn't cost anything. Uh, you know about the workshop. I write novels. Uh, I wrote a novel called Awakening, which is about this question of the matrix of consciousness. I have another one called The Vision. I have a third one coming out, and I'll be out on the 1st of May called The Amish Girl. So, I mean, I try to write about this stuff. You can go to YouTube and get my YouTube interviews and TED Talks. We stand at a crossroads, and I do these kind of interviews because I have this sense of deep imperative that we must make different choices and that it is up to us. No one else is going to do it, but we ourselves. It was really empowering talking with Stefan regarding feeling that we actually can be participants in making social change. Each one of us individually can do the work through using either the tools of mindfulness or meditation to get in touch with our own compassion, with our own well-being, and then allowing that then to become the filter through which we make choices that will impact all of life around us. We are at a serious juncture in our world today, and it becomes even more important that we are making these decisions and showing up not only for ourselves, as Stefan said, not just so that we make a profit or that our company makes a profit, but how can we make decisions that help profit, if you will, each other and this planet, that it's no longer just an individual journey, but a collective one. I just think that all of this is coming at such an important time. And as Stefan shared with us, if we just start within ourselves and then tell 10 friends to join us in the journey, that's how change gets started. We can just start wherever we are. And by being able to embrace that within us that looks through the lens of compassion, we can be a part of this change and a huge part of the consciousness movement. Remember, The Spark is your show too. If you have questions, feedback on the show, or if you're going through something and need a little help, we'd love to hear from you. Continue the conversation with us at our website, thesparkpod.com, and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. New episodes of The Spark air Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Mountain. To make sure you don't miss an episode, Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
The show is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional and should not be considered medical advice. If you're having a mental or physical health crisis, please seek treatment immediately. The Spark is produced by NOCO Media Limited, which is solely responsible for its content. Thanks again for listening. This has been The Spark, igniting your best life. I'm Stephanie James. This has been a production of NOCO-FM.